Okay, so we'll do it this way. All right, so I've asked you to um, think of your own Gwen. And um, what we need to remember is a lot of our older people are living in the communities without any um, contact with health or social care. They live completely um, independent and good lives. Um, and those of those older people who, who are under health and social care should be being seen as part of a comprehensive geriatric assessment. And that's a um, four point um, discussion. It's about what's their physical health, what's their cognitive health, what's their social health, and what's their pharmacy needs. And then um, through all of that, we can tie together a, a pathway, a plan, um, and we can try and work out what matters most. So the interesting thing for Gwen is that she was 102. Okay. Now, she was one of 15,000 people in the UK who were 102, or over 100 rather, and that's uh, an 18% increase since 2018. So when we are talking about having older populations, we've got to plan that this is going to have to be everybody's business. So the clinical frailty scale is um, the chosen tool within Buckinghamshire to help us identify cohorts who are frail. And we're looking for people who are frail or severely frail. OK, so it's not about a number per se. You're not scored one to nine. Um, it's about the golden question. How was this person two weeks ago? Um, and then how far off they are they off that baseline? And what do I now need to uh, question? So flicking back to the previous slide, you would have seen that Gwen was living at home, um, living a largely independent life, although her family were helping her with a little bit of dressing, a little bit of um, cooking, but she was not seeing her doctor a lot. She wasn't on a huge number of medicines um, and therefore she would have scored a six. So what happened to Gwen? Let's ask Dr. Thacker what uh, good care would look like for an older person in the community. So hi everybody, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Raj Thacker, I'm a GP and Plan Care Director at the CCG. So I'm just going to be talking briefly on what uh, frailty looks like in primary care and what good looks like. I think it's important for us to remember, however, that frailty is a system problem. It's not just GP dependent, and if we all don't address it together, then the patient might come to harm. So uh, from that perspective, we all need to think about frailty to understand it as a long term condition, to identify it, record it using the clinical frailty score, just like diabetes or heart failure. And of course, we need the whole system, including primary care, to understand the value and purpose of identifying frailty. So what does uh, good look like from a, uh, from a primary care perspective? Well, of course, we need to think about uh, primary care as the whole PCN. So nurses, pharmacists, healthcare assistants, social prescribers, first point, uh, uh, first contact practitioners, out of our services uh, and in hours primary care to all think about frailty uh, to ensure that those patients uh, have a frailty score recorded and a diagnosis 
of frailty recorded. That's really important because if that recording isn't done, then the whole system can't see potentially that that patient is frail. Once recorded and once diagnosed, then those patients need to have individualized care plan discussions. Um, not only that, we need to then uh, de-prescribe, so that needs to be uh, uh, ensure that that happens in primary care, but also in secondary care, particularly uh, when they are inpatients in hospital, but also outpatients. Falls assessments need to be done. Treatment escalation plans need to be done in a planned way, such that if patients are then uh, um, in crisis, uh, the rest of the system, so ambulance trust, out of hours, 111, hospitals can see there's a treatment escalation plan and following it and then follow it accordingly. If patients are referred, then the frailty information should uh, be on that referral sheet. I think that's really important for secondary care. And if secondary care are receiving a referral, they should also ask about frailty and that's on an inpatient and an outpatient planned way as well. I think it's important that uh, out of hours and emergency colleagues will diagnose frailty in real time and make care plans in real time uh, because of course there may be a historical frailty score which isn't up to date. Um, perhaps in primary care advice and guidance availability uh, would be useful for colleagues who are unsure uh, and it's really important then um, on hospital discharges frailty has been discussed such that primary care can then continue those discussions. In other words, there's a significant number of frail end of life patients in hospital and those discussions, if they are had in hospital uh, throughout their hospital journey, it makes discharge and care planning in the community far more easy rather than uh, patients who have no discussion about frails or end of life or discharge. And then the GP is faced with having to have those conversations in the community, which obviously makes life more difficult. Uh, furthermore, in, in, in primary care, obviously, we're talking about frailty virtual wards and the ability to admit to those uh, hopefully will come online fairly soon. Uh, and I think it's important for the whole system to be able to access EMIS and treatment escalation plans such that the whole system starts to talk to each other in, in an integrated way. And therefore, that means out of hours, 111, SCAS, community and hospital. Uh, just coming to the end here, so just in terms of uh, data, it's important to have data so we understand uh, where to focus in, in terms of uh, various different metrics and those metrics are being developed uh, as we speak uh, and it's important that we ensure that uh, in terms of the hospital admission the right person gets admitted to hospital on an individualized care basis rather than the wrong person so some of those issues will be captured by the data uh, dashboard thanks very much for listening so thank you to Dr. Sacker. So hi everybody. Um, so that's the, obviously the theory. Um, but Gwen went into Wexham Park Hospital. That was her local hospital. It was where she had had admissions, but not many admissions. Um, and as we said at the beginning, was living a fairly independent life, not really on anybody's radar. Um, she went in for a, a new a confusion attributed to a urine infection. It was suspected that um, she would get out quite quickly, but she had oxygen requirements. Um, and then as many patients caught COVID during uh, the December months, and so her stay became longer and longer in, in hospital. And the family's uh, reflection of that time was 
that they saw nothing but kind and good care. But it was a start of a journey for them and for Gwen because they hadn't had a hospital experience for a while. Um, and actually what was going to happen next? And they very much wanted her at home. They were planning on building a new house. So she couldn't go home at that point. Um, and therefore she was discharged on the discharge to assess pathway. So you can see in that timeline, um, quite prompt, sort of a six week stay, but some different words being used for the family, um, including issue palliative, um, discharge to assess, because we're still aiming on getting home. So what does discharge to assess actually mean? And Tammy, I hope is on the call in order to be able to give us some um, Wisdom. I'm here. I'm here, Joe. Thank um, you. No, thank you. Um, so for those that don't know who I am, I'm Tammy Noster. I'm head of uh, nursing for discharge services uh, for the whole of BHT. Um, and that incorporates um, the referral process into our discharge to assess. So what is discharge to assess? Uh, basically, when patients get to the point where they are clinically optimised or in current language do not fit the criteria to reside in a hospital, um, but still have ongoing assessment needs, it's a about providing those assessments in the best place for them. Um, so we do discharge to assess in uh, nursing home beds. Uh, we also have also got home care um, and people that have worked on the wards and discharge patients will have heard of Home First, um, which is our discharge to assess. We also have reablement um, services and rehab services, which also do assess in their own home. Um, so that is generally what it is it allows people to recover at the rate that they need to it allows them to have their assessments done in the most appropriate setting um, to determine obviously long-term needs okay thank you Tammy so unfortunately the staff from the care home can't come here today but they uh, very much wanted to be here because they wanted us as a secondary care to understand what goes on in, in the care home. Um, and Gwen did really well. Um, the discharge to assess process worked really well. She was um, settled quite quickly. She was improving her mobility. Um, she was starting to think about going home. And family were getting excited about that. But she was also perhaps for the first time in 102 years, experiencing what a care home could be. So the family were also thinking, well, if we want a holiday in the future, she's she settles here. Um, and I think sometimes we don't always think about care homes. So how many care homes do you think we have in the UK? Would you be surprised if I said it's over 17,000? There's a workforce of um, about 700,000 people supporting our care homes across the UK, um, and they do a fantastic job. They're looking after approximately half a million of our population. 70% of our care homes are uh, residential nationally, but that leaves 30% to nursing care. And one figure that always surprises me is about 70% of people in care homes have got some form of um, cognitive decline or an, a, a level of dementia. So they do a real good shout out and they were doing a, a brilliant job with Gwen. 
The Enhanced Care and Support for Care Homesteads is one of the new models of care set out in the NHS five-year forward view in 2020. It is about forming relationships to provide good quality care for care home residents. Our care home residents are some of the most complex patients with regards to their healthcare needs, and they have the same right to healthcare as any other citizen. Primary care networks, or PCNs, build on the current core of primary care. They work on economies of scale, but are small enough to provide person-centred care. At Western Grove, we are our own PCN with a population of about 31,000 patients. We have GPs, nurses, physiotherapists, pharmacists, paramedics, social prescribers, a mental health nurse and a wellbeing coach. The enhanced care and support for care homes moves towards proactive care centred around the needs of an individual. The DARES states that every care home should have a PCN and a named clinical lead. They should have a weekly care home round, access to multidisciplinary care, and every patient should have an advanced care plan and a structured medication review. The aim is to provide better person-centred care with better outcomes for people through better management of their long-term conditions, resulting in a decrease in unplanned hospital admissions and a decrease in hospital as a place of death. By building trusted MDT relationships, we allow the whole system to work better. Thank you to Dr Ferguson um, for presenting that slide. So you can see on that pattern of care that we all talk about, and you know, if that was your Gwen, she's moved from her own home to an acute hospital. She's gone to a care home, but she's gone to a care home that's got um, care wrapped around it in order to help her get back to her, her own home. But inevitably at 102, she had a day that she needed to come into the acute hospital. And on admission one, she arrived in our emergency department um, short of breath. We knew that the care home had had some COVID at that time. Um, and our emergency protocols are often about where's the emergency? What do we need to do? So let's put the cannula in, let's start the bloods, etc. But we had our geriatrician service at the front door and we were able to stop that admitting further at this point and thinking, how can we work collaboratively with the care home? Um, and on admission one, we got her home that day and almost within hours of arriving in the ED. However, partly because of that traditional culture of cannulations and a series of blood tests, she was called back from the care home because one of the results had shown a suspected uh, contaminated blood culture. Now, in some parts of the country, they have um, services where IVs can be delivered at nursing homes and things, and we don't have that service currently, but in the absence of that, she got admitted into hospital. And this time, she didn't go home that day. This time we had to treat, so she had repeated IV um, antibiotics. Inevitably, she had repeated ward moves. Um, and as a result of this, she became risk of the deconditioning that often becomes part of uh, the acute hospital experience. The, we've always done it this way, so we're always going to do this. And things. Um, so let's just take a moment about thinking of the wealth of what the front door experience can, can be. Elderly care physician of the day, 
which is Eckford Service, is a geriatrician's presence at front door to render specialist service to frail elderly patients attending AME with various acute medical and sometimes psychosocial issues. After initial assessment, investigations, and the collateral information, we are able to advise on available alternative service options of managing the acute issues in community and aiming to avoid the acute hospital admissions when possible. Uh, we have our Mudas Day Hospital support at Wickham, uh, where we could follow up these patients for further management. Our liaison with therapy team, REACT, enables us to address urgent therapy and the care issues. Uh, ECMOR also supports the uh, assessment in the frailty estate, where our elderly patients are assessed in more comfortable space away from any bus. So again, we have a team at the front door who's ultimately helping us um, think alternatives to admit. Gwen did need to stay in hospital and, as I say, had various ward moves and different clinicians, different teams will have different views of, of things. And unfortunately, um, Gwen did have a fall, so she had to have a CT head for that. She became confused. Uh, she'd had another move, so she had to have another CT head because of that. Um, and again, the family said it was fine, but we didn't quite know where she was going to end up next. What was the purpose? What was the plan to get her out and where was she going to? Um, and we were within um, the graft of that information, making it easier for Gwen and for her family. She did get back to the care home and she had a good um, 10 days there and continued to do well. But unfortunately, was um, found having had a seizure um, in the early hours and gets conveyed to hospital. Now, because it was a seizure, she had to go to the stroke unit. And anybody that's worked with stroke services will know that um, time is brain. So inevitably, you're not sure what you've got to deal with. So you have to cannulate, you've got to scan, etc. And sadly for Gwen, um, she had to be sedated for the scan because she was very um, terribly irritated and it showed a massive stroke. So it was clear with the level of the stroke that Gwen was not going to do well. Um, the prognosis was poor, but the family said that they didn't hear that. What they heard was the word, she's going to be more disabled. And they didn't hear the word death till the last few hours as such, because it was, she may get over this, she's got over other things, but it's unlikely because that's such a big infarct and things. And understandably, that's a traumatic situation for the family. It's a traumatic situation for the staff. You've got somebody very elderly, very poorly in, in your unit and things. And the learning for the care home was we would have had her back. We wanted to have her back. We were always trying to get information um, and we could have all worked together to go back to some of those processes that we've already talked about in the journey. You know, there's a GP visiting this home. We've got support networks that will come in. We've got lots of services, both within BHT and our community. So reflection and review. Stories are largely how we learn. As kids, 
we're often brought up the story, aren't we? Because it, it makes you think. Um, the science behind storytelling as part of leadership is that you'll remember 40% of the story. But more than that, hopefully this uh, case presentation makes you think, what do I want to do to make another Gwen's journey better? So not just about my own clinical competencies, but do I actually understand all of those services? Do I work in a team and aspire to be that team that always does fantastic discharge summaries? Do I work in a team and understand how a clinical frailty scale of six in December 21 would have shown every possibility of getting Gwen home? But as she became frailer, partly because she was losing the reserves to overcome that simple urine infection, different questions needed to be asked. Right at the beginning of the story, Gwen's family didn't have power of attorney because nobody had ever discussed power of attorney with them. But if we have a society that readily discusses the big stuff, including how to look after older people, including what dying well is, including what a virtual ward is, including what a frailty school is. But when we're tired, we can work in traditional silos. So I hope that this story of Gwen will energise a lot of people within Buckinghamshire, not just me, who's often known as the frailty nurse or the dementia nurse. And you know, I make no joke, I've heard people go, oh yeah, it's her again. She's got something on her phone, which is actually quite good. I think it's called a frailty app or something. Well, that's not my app. That's everybody's business. Everybody can have that. Everybody needs to understand that the discharge to assess pathway is not a takeaway pathway. It's an assessment with a plan behind it. And we need to embrace it and celebrate it and communicate it correctly. Virtual wards has come up three times in different discussions today. It was in the leadership brief. But how are you as practitioners going to find people for that? How are you going to feed into that? It's a really exciting time for us to do care differently. So in terms of reflection and reviewing, we're in um, May. Yeah, it's nice and hot at the moment. We're not thinking winter, but winter is only a few months away because in my experience, winter usually starts around September and you sure as hell have got it by October. Have we got all of our practices, all of our thoughts, all of our coordination ready? So this is my opportunity to offer you this. This slide will be available to any team. And it's just that opportunity to think, do I or do my team really understand the frailty strategy? Do I understand frailty? Or would I like a little bit more? And actually, what would I need to understand palliation, to understand families' views? And if you return that to us, depending on your grading of where you think, then we'll come and we'll do some bespoke work with you or we'll send you an article that actually explains what a virtual ward looks like. Or it will send you something that we found from the Acute Frailty Network that made sense to us as a small team. And then together we can be better for the winter. OK. There'll also be three great reads that are available after this. One of them, because we've had so many technology problems, I'm not going to dare to open them now. Um, but one of them is the Frailty 
strategy for Buckinghamshire. The middle one is a really quick um, training tool for the clinical frailty scale. It takes 15 minutes maximum and things, but it actually rejigs uh, how to think about that. And the third one is all about how clinical frailty scales should be something that we get excited about. It's not just a number, but it's actually about here's somebody who's gone from there to there, or actually here's somebody who's exactly as they were. So where can they go other than into another ward? And all of this together ties up, makes sense of all the multiple projects in the trust at the moment, the handover, what our clerking booklets should look like, what our board rounds should look like, how quickly and energised should we be thinking, where's home, what's home? So thank you for giving me 30 minutes of your time. I'm sorry about the IT problems at the beginning, but wouldn't be BHT without a few IT problems, would it? Um, and let's move forwards because together we are so much stronger. And as we've already had um, representation from two of our GPs, there's a great wish in primary care to work with us for the population that is all of our business. Thank you very much. Uh, no, I, I, I can only apologise for being late because uh, I had a different time in my diary. So I, was, I thought I was logging on early and then I was like, oh, my gosh, it's uh, <laughs> it's at the end. But but I just would like to say, I mean, I just endorse this message. It is not just integrated elderly's problem frailty. We're all aware of it. it is everybody's problem, a bit like safeguarding. And we've all got a part to play in it. So I think the um, if we could have just encouraged people to return back the previous slide that Joe sent out some sort of sense checking is where everybody is um, I think I think that would be really helpful and 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 then we can involve you and teach you and help you um, just it's just making people aware of of what what we can do to help collectively as, as a bunch of people but uh, just to say a massive thank you massive thank you Joe I can see I can see hands from two of our geriatricians. If we've got time, just to take those comments, I don't want to uh, run over time. But Dr. Dr. Phelps, Dr. Chanda, what would you like to say? Hi, Joe. Um, as usual, uh, thank you so much because I don't know what we would do without you. Um, uh, the whole trust. Um, uh, you know, you are what I aspire one day to be. Um, uh, and, and thank you. Uh, I wanted to comment on how, unfortunately, how commonly I see cases like this. Um, and, and, and I keep re trying to reflect on what exactly is um, uh, going on and, 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 and what is happening to some of our very frail elderly patients. Um, and one thing I observe is that um, there doesn't seem to be a connection between what we have in front of us, you know, the patient in front of us, and, and, and what we go on and do. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to criticize. We, we, we as doctors, we get uh, uh, trained to follow protocols. And each 
uh, team and department has to do certain things. But uh, what I notice is that our patients, these particular frail kind of patients, tend to fall through the cracks of those artificial boundaries we we create. So, so oh. I think, Dr. Felt, sorry, we're really tight for time. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I, th I think there is a point that you made there about protocols. So everybody that's watched this presentation or sat through it, we have an opportunity to reflect, don't we? Do we go by the protocol or do we go by our gut feeling that actually this person is deconditioning today? We worry when somebody bleeds out. It's an emergency, but do we worry if Gwen is still sitting in a bed four days later and we don't think she's walked? Do we notice the catheter that doesn't need to be there? So I think it's a really exciting time, but it's only going to be energised if each one of us holds the Gwen in our hearts and doesn't worry so much about the protocol. Dr Chanda, we are really tight for time, but was I saying anything different to you? What you want to no, say? no, no. I, I just felt that whether this patient has had, when she was discharged and the last time prior to that, whether there was any community tape done. And I think frailty is a business for all. And one, I would also say one size does not fit all. We have had virtual world meeting and it's, it's, it's not just one plan can be implemented to another. And, and there is a need for workforce planning in order to achieve success and to be making people aware of what frailty and what to do. So there is a long way to go. It's not, it cannot be achieved in a day or two. And no, that's what that, I would say. Uh, no, thank, thank you for that. And there absolutely is. And this is not about, you know, hospitals versus care homes or absolutely. whatever. The, the sequence of messages has been communication. So, you know, yeah. if you know we're not doing good discharge summaries, what are you doing about it? Absolutely. Because being passive is not great. If we're doing yeah. board rounds and we know that Gwen needs a tap, we yeah. owe it to our colleagues in the care home, our colleagues in primary care, to deliver it. Yeah. Same You're as right. they have a responsibility to us, because we've said yeah. we are one yeah. journey. And then we will learn from people like Gwen's family, who we are truly indebted for allowing us to share this story and things. But and their point was, you know, I only saw good and kind but it did feel a bit of a muddle at times. Mm. Okay, I have well run over my time, um, but I'll claim that five minutes back because the slides didn't run at the beginning. Yeah. So, thank, thank you, you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Yeah,